Tanner Merlees is the Director of the Communication and Digital Media Studies Program at Ontario Tech University. His current research focuses on topics in the political economy of communications, such as war and media, work and labor in the creative and digital industries, and the links between far-right hate groups and social media platforms. He's the author of Hearts and Minds, The U.S. Empire's Cultural Industry, Global Entertainment Media, Between Cultural Imperialism and Cultural Globalization, co-author of EdTech Incorporated, Selling, Automating, and Globalizing Higher Education in the Digital Age, and the co-editor of Media Imperialism, Continuity and Change. He's also heavily involved in efforts to spread the knowledge practices of academia beyond the university. He's appeared, for example, in documentaries like Theaters of War and Myths on Screen, and contributed to putting together podcasts like Darts and Letters, Dangers of Techno-Utopianism series. Our conversation is an attempt to wrestle with American militarism, especially but not exclusively as it finds form through popular cultural representations. There's a very long history, Tanner points out, of the U.S. Department of Defense investing in media products that project American military power in precisely the way that the DoD wants. While this collusion is now loosely understood, Merlee's insights point out the specific aspects of this ongoing partnership. So we talk about the massive popularity of films like Captain Marvel or Top Gun Maverick, spending a lot of time unpacking the dizzying spectacle of Maverick, one of 2022's biggest movies, truly a dizzying spectacle in terms of the gap between dramatized surreality and the actual logistics of military operations. Even though the DOD's stated policy is that it will support films that give a quote, realistic and authentic representation of the military, the reality of the representational choices in Maverick expose how tenuous that grip on reality tends to be. And in fact, how films benefit financially and technologically from the Pentagon when they fudge the facts firmly in their favor. There are long-standing fears that drive this sort of forceful fabulation. One is the fear of a decline in the United States imperial power relative to other influential states like China and Russia. Another is the threat of nuclear annihilation. The Pentagon's particular investment in how Hollywood represents this threat has shifted over time, with Tom Cruise's last two big action films, Mission Impossible Fallout and Maverick, centering on this threat as a chief way to threaten the integrity and hegemony of American empire. Merlees offers some valuable commentary on how Maverick was written out of a time in the recent past where the threat of Iran enriching uranium was front of mind in U.S. security planning. The United States has waged wars without end for a very long time. The country dominates in virtually every corporate sector, and yet the U.S. empire functions in ways that are distinct from past modes of colonial imperial command. Multiple spheres interlock and interoperate in sometimes subtle ways, and while force is fundamental, cultural impact is also critical. As Tanner puts it, no corporation sees itself as an emissary of the U.S. national security state and yet they are also incentivized or compelled to serve its ambitions. What are the foundations of that sort of power? How can we examine its constitutive elements? When you ask if U.S. empire could fall in your book, Hearts and Minds, and reference the emergence of these declinist thinkers, uh, I still think it's hard for most people to imagine. Like. Even as the war in Ukraine and financial volatility threatens to undermine U.S. empire, it clearly lurches on. Um, so like, you know, you have a couple chapters in that book on media imperialism. In one of them, you say like ongoing conflicts between the U.S. and China, Russia, Iran and other countries highlight the asymmetrical autonomy of non-U.S. states to pursue their national interests. So BRIC countries have to make a choice right now in the context of this volatility. Um, and yet, you know. After 9-11, you, you write about this as well, like U.S. empire gets presented as something that is like absolutely necessary for the kind of stability of a world or order of neoliberal states. And I think just we're still living, from my perspective, under that logic. Um, and I was reminded of that recently here in Halifax when, you know, a terrifying aircraft carrier came over the horizon, heralded by the local news. And like we all saw it in Halifax Harbor. Um, and yet, you know, the USS Gerald Ford passes through and doesn't register as a threat. Mm. Now, that's, you know, first of all, probably because 
it is not a threat to us in this part of the world. But it was almost as though, from my perspective, it didn't even register as a weapon. Mm. Now, you know, I think you're right that for the scale of the U.S. military to be rendered normal to that extent, even indispensable, despite the sheer amount of carnage it causes, um, or even the amount of pollution it pumps into the environment, like for that to happen, it does take a massive creative commitment to controlling images and stories. So like, number one, can we imagine that the US empire could fall? And in part, does that take a shift in the imagination for us to, yeah, get to that place? So I think it's important to note that the discourse of US in decline has been with the United States precisely from the moment it began to rise as a global superpower in the post-World War II era. Um, much of the expansion of the United States, economically, militarily, technologically, culturally, um, was, was framed by a lot of you know, national security uh, decision makers, you know, strategic thinkers, you know, as, as a response to the threat posed by the Soviet Union to the United States' rise, right? So the fear of decline has kind of always been around. It's always been a way to rationalize or justify uh, the expansion of the United States. Um, I think that we could probably be fair to sort of contemporary declinists and say, yes, we, we, we might say that there's been some kind of relative decline. Um, if we were to compare, for example, the size of the U.S. economy overall in 1964 to the size of the U.S. economy overall in you know, today's terms. But I, I, I don't think that there is any evidence whatsoever of the United States facing a genuine substantive rival that possesses the same structural capacity as the United States um, to expand and project its interests and realize those uh, across borders in many, many countries. Um, there's indicators of this, you know, and so if, if we want to start studying like great power politics, you know, or what are the structural pillars of U.S. power and how might we sort of establish a metric of some kind for identifying and assessing those vis-a-vis -vis other countries, we could focus in on things like you know, economic power, uh, military power, media technological power. I mean, historically, all of the world's most uh, significant empires have have demonstrated, uh, you know, tremendous, uh, you know, gargantuan capacity within these spheres. Um, and, and the United States is, is very similar uh, in that respect. So, I mean, think about the size of the U.S. economy. I mean, as is 2021, you know, the U.S. is only home to about 4.25% of the world's population, right? So that's like 330 million people on a planet of nearly 8 billion people. But even still, the U.S. represented about 24.2% of global gross domestic product. Mm -hmm. That's that's just, I mean, that's a rough, and, you know, GDP doesn't tell us a lot. I mean, about a quality, uh, you know, of life in a country or, or, you know, class inequality or oppression. But it is sort of an indicator of economic strength. Um, China had about 18.5%, you know, of the global population in the same year. That's about 1.41 billion people. And it made up about 18.6% of GDP. Mm -hmm. um, in 2021, you know, the U.S. was um, the choice country for the world's, you know, greatest investments. You know, one, one indicator of a country's capitalist power is this global finance capital um, interested in investing there. I mean, is it a trustworthy country to invest in? Do they see return on investment? By, by, by putting their money in a particular country. And the U.S. You know, captured the greatest foreign direct investment flows. Um, you know, the U.S. dollar is the, still the world's primary re reserve currency. Um, uh, you know, you could do other things like, okay, where, where are the greatest global corporations headquartered? Um, and we know that corporations are multinational and transnational and sort of operate across borders with very complex commodity chains and so forth. But, you know, according to the 2021 Forbes Global 2000 list of the world's largest public companies, um, the U.S. headquartered most of these, you know, 590. And China was mm -hmm. next with 351. Uh, the U.S. is still home to the greatest number of billionaires and the most advanced sectors of capital, largely in, in high tech, you know, um, and uh, also U.S. brands, you know, is a brand recognition, you know, um, is still sort of um, outmatching sort of, you know, brand recognition of other countries. And so mm -hmm. that's just sort of like a, an economic register of, of U.S., you know, power in, in 2021. But, you know, we can sort of then move, you know, okay, well, economic power is often protected and promoted by military power. And 
the history of the U.S. empire, at least since 45, has been one of almost near permanent warfare to you know, expand the, the, the space and time of capitalist accumulation. Um, and, and, and sort of, you know, ongoing military largesse, you know, expansion of bases, you know, wars without end um, has been a constant, you know, in U.S. history since 45. Um, so um, the U.S. is still outspending its military rivals. You know, I think the, the, the greatest sort of military expenditure of all time was in 2021, right, with about $800 million for the DOD yeah. uh, budget. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's like that was basically 38 percent, I think, of the of the globe's total military uh, expenditure. Um, and the U.S. was outmatching the expenditure of the next top nine spenders combined. Like so China only took up 14 <laughs> percent, like Russia took up 3.1 percent. Right. right? And, and, yet, really- and yet pundits imagine that war between the United States and China is inevitable, yes. um, perhaps because of like some of these statistics that you're pointing out, these numbers that suggest China is is rising like that fact of China rising is itself enough to uh, uh, spur this like inevitable sense that, you know, war between the U.S. and China is coming. Absolutely. And and much of the U.S. foreign policy and security establishment in 2021 made that very explicit. So, I mean, in in a a sort of slightly different research project I've been working on, I did a comparative analysis of the U.S. and China. And and you see basically every major U.S. security state agency um, you know, from Department of Homeland Security, the CIA to the DOD, the National Security Council, basically all lining up and saying, yep, China now is our greatest threat and mm-hmm. the greatest threat to us and our integrated or incorporated ally states. Um, and and the reason for this, I mean, I don't know if this is an act of deterrence, you know, saber rattling to try to sort of deter China from 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 further expanding its interest economically and militarily and media culturally. Um, you know, or if the U.S. is very, very serious about this. I mean, if history is any guide to the present, I think we need to recognize that the U.S. has never, ever tolerated an equivalent rival. We've never lived in a genuinely bipolar world system with two world orders, um, with different sort of modes of, of economy, of state forms, you know, ways of being, ways of life. The U.S. simply has mm-hmm. not tolerated that diversity. Um, I don't even think we've really lived in a multipolar world, to be quite honest. You know, most multipolar sort of ideas still see the U.S. as central uh, to um, a certain kind of you know order uh, that other countries are buying into and accepting and then reproducing within their own social forms. But, um, yeah, I mean, just even think like nukes, like the U.S. almost has like 3,700 you know, nuclear warheads. China possesses like 350 and like. China like has a few bases now that sort of are being built out elsewhere, but you know the U.S. has like hundreds, you know, mm-hmm. spanning other countries surrounding China, surrounding Russia, protected by status of forces agreements, which basically extend U.S. you know sovereignty into the sovereign territorial borders of other states. Um, and so this is just, I mean, this is this is the mark of of an empire. Um, and one of the things that that bothers me, both in the Canadian context, in the United States context, and perhaps elsewhere, is just this kind of either denial of empire or the flip side of denial is sort of like emboldened hubris, you know, with the necessity of empire, you know? So I think there's this strange uh, sensibility where people flip saying like, no, there's no empire. The U S is just kind of a superpower or some other kind of unique state, you know, has certain responsibilities or that's sort of the U S is an empire and we need more imperialism to make the world safe for capitalism and liberal democracy. And I feel right now we're in sort of the moment again, where people are saying the U S is an empire. We need the United States to be the empire. And we need the United States to protect and promote capitalism and then a liberal democratic superstructure uh, and human rights around the world. So it almost feels like I'm doing a time work. We're in a time work in, in foreign policy discourse back to the early two thousands. Um, and this really, as you said earlier, is a response to, the threat, real and or imagined, that China poses to a U.S.-centered world order, mm-hmm. um, and Russia. I mean, Russia. The obviously the invasion of Ukraine and this show of uh, Russian imperialist aggression um, has sort of reinvoked the sense that we inhabit sort of a multipolar world where you know countries do have been you know sort of compelled in some ways to choose a side. Uh, and it really has come down to largely boycotts of, you know, Russian energy. But like, I wanted to pick up on what you're talking about in terms of, in a way that just the denial of American empire, this kind of, you know, trick of history that is almost, you know, 
Desmond Cole talks about like a white supremacist improv that is just mm. so dodgy about just sort of like denying these realities exist in order to maintain this this power. Um, and I think like the focus of hearts and minds is really on, as you put it, like the organizational sources of the militarization of American culture that make war look and feel so good because mm. what you're arguing is that yes, the U S does not fit the profile of, as you say, an old colonial empire. It is, you say history's first full fledged post-colonial empire and that it doesn't possess colonies per se, but it seeks to integrate other states within its geopolitical economy. And so like, you know, you gesture uh, uh, in your in your piece, U.S. Empire and Cultural Imperialism to this idea that historically empires kind of force others to do what it wants through basically threats, punishments, outright warfare. What the U.S. Empire is really built on is a kind of persuasion uh, moral authority, a, a model of leadership that obviously contains so much, you know, capacity, uh, gargantuan, as you say, capacity to do damage. Um, but the idea, you know, again, like if I'm reading you correctly, like the idea is that it took persuasion to create a world order distinct from past empires. And so, like, I wonder if you could speak to why it might be that, you know, entertainment industries, uh, um, you know, are, are, have, you know, historically clearly collaborated with this, this, you know, um, fictional sense of the United States as incontestable, but that, you know, like why it is that that collusion is still a controversial point to make, why it's still controversial to claim the U S is an empire, um, why it takes people like Ruth Wilson Gilmore saying that the U S is a muscular purveyor of culture, um, for us to really like dwell with the fact that, Empire building in the United in in a world dominated by the United States is as much about culture and persuasion as it is about um, you know threats, punishment, outright warfare. You know, I think that that your your question around these different instruments or tools of of power, you know, coercive or persuasive, hard or soft, you know, remind me of longstanding debates in international political economy, you know, around how. You know, hegemons or superpowers or empires, you know, go about, about ruling or, or trying to rule uh, other mm-hmm. countries and populations. And so, you know, I remember sort of, you know, I was very much influenced by the work of Herbert I. Schiller, who was probably the first political economist of U.S. empire and communications. And um, Schiller was, you know, working in, in, in conjunction with many of the sort of leaders of the national liberation movements of the post-colonial world at the time, citing folks like Fanon and Nkrumah. Um, but it's interesting because I think of the radical edge of Schiller and because Schiller was daring to sort of name, you know, the empire, um, it never became a popular figure in a lot of mainstream communication and cultural studies, at least not in the United States. But anyway, mm-hmm. so Schiller was kind of coming, really there was a theory of, 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 of imperial power, you know, in, in Schiller's work. And, and by the 70s, then there's a lot of folks in international political economy that are trying to take up Gramsci and sort of say, what can Gramsci teach us about international relations or international affairs or power relations between states and classes? And, and people started using Gramsci's you know, term of hegemony, which was always about a delicate balance of force and consent, coercion and persuasion um, to achieve certain strategic objectives, you know, as the way by which imperial hegemons exercised rule. Um, or try to organize sort of their rule in other countries. And then, you know, that had a, too much perhaps of a class analysis. And so then by the 90s, a lot of liberal international relations scholars were quite comfortable, you know, saying that the United States was indeed a superpower, an exceptional, special country that has certain kind of moral responsibility because of its exceptional, special nature. But it wasn't an empire. It was just a superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that was Joseph Nye, who was working in the liberal international relations tradition, who came up with the term soft power. You know, which was uh, about persuasive power, about getting others to identify with your goals and aspirations without the use of force. Back to the initial question you raised, you know. So Mm -hmm. so I think's definition of soft power was something like the ability of a state to obtain what it wants through co-optation and attraction, not coercion or bribery. Mm -hmm. And so that really became a very, very popular way of trying to theorize. And also kind of like a way of 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 like. Subtly, just sort of just like it's like you can basically Nye is arguing, making a case about what the United States is doing to achieve its strategic objectives in world affairs that isn't that 
different from what Herbert Schiller was talking about when he was criticizing cultural imperialism. But this concept of soft power becomes kind of like a stand-in or sort of a, a way to sort of tone down the critical edge, you know, of these mm -hmm. earlier concepts that, that more lefties and Marxists had been responsible for coining. But, but anyway, anyway, all states, including the United States, you know, on a world scale are competing for hearts and minds. You know, they're using all available means of communication and media to be the most like countries. There's things like nation brand indexes that are published each year. Say like, what countries are the most liked or the most attractive to investors and to other people? Um, and so there's really a battle of, of ideas and information and media that all countries are currently participating in to win other people's kind of approval of their cultures, of their identities, and of their foreign policies. So this isn't just something the United States is doing. This is something that all countries are doing. But what makes the United States different here is that it still possesses the greatest capacity to engage in the battle of ideas and to try to win hearts and minds and try to control the image of itself and the stories told about itself. So, you know, just back to the sort of uh, register of U.S. structural power, you know, in the media technological sphere, um, you know, that, that global Forbes uh, 2000 list of 2021, you know, the list of the world's greatest 2000 uh, global companies, you know, the U.S. dominates all the major sectors related to comm and media and tech, you know, IT and software, hardware and tech equipment, media, news, entertainment, PR, telecom, semiconductors, like the U.S. is home to 90 of the world's largest global corporations in the sector. And I, you know, I remember like um, China is, was home to just like 29. So there's nowhere close to a rivalry, you know, mm -hmm. on that front. But that sort of capacity, right, that corporate, that capital, that concentration, you know, that structural power, you know, in the media technological sphere really does give the U.S. a strategic advantage when it's competing with other countries to influence populations, how they perceive the United States, its culture, its identity, its foreign policy, and also to sort of uh, to deflect from or counter criticisms that are being made. Uh, of the United States. And so um, it, it, there's just this immense structural capacity. But the thing here is that it's not just the corporations. They don't just do it all by themselves. Like most corporations in the first instance are interested in, 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 in generating revenue and paying dividends to shareholders on a quarterly basis. Like no corporations see themselves openly or explicitly as like emissaries of empire or propagandists for the national security state. Like they they're existing in markets, they're in the sphere of business, they're in the sphere of industry, they have certain kinds of imperatives and objectives that are not explicitly geopolitical in essence. So the question then becomes like, how does the US state get some of these corporations to support you know, its foreign policy promotion and projection? Right. And I think that brings us to that that concept of the military and entertainment complex. Um, that you alluded to earlier. Yeah, I mean, like mystification is such a core part of creating any sort of national brand because a nation is a place where people live <laughs> and an economy <laughs> is a place where people, you know, trade their labor and and, and trade things and, and circulate. And yet when we talk about this metric of national brands, like which countries are most, most appealing, we're talking about something else. We're talking about the market. We're talking about things that are largely... Um, imaginary rather than material. Um, and so like, I think so much of it is about this level uh, is happening at this level of mystification. And, you know, I'm really interested in unpacking that, like, because, uh, you know, you appear in this, this theater theaters of war documentary, which is such an interesting analysis of exactly how this form of cultural imperialism, a, a cultural power, a form of soft power persuasion gets amassed. Mm. Um, and in that documentary, you talk about how, you know, really what we're looking at is more insidious than corporations uh, corresponding with uh, uh, a form of like national branding, you know, like mm -hmm. you're, you're more interested in the, as you put it, more insidious character of this stuff that passes off as entertainment. And so like what the documentary is so brilliant in exposing is the way that the Department of Defense really operates as another producer on these films, offering their toys, as it's frequently phrased in the, yeah. in the film. Um, in exchange for creative access. And like what I found so revelatory was this long history that is exposed in the film of the scores of, of projects that just never materialized because of the denial of resources by the U.S. military. So it's like, it's not just what we see and its persuasive effect, it's what we don't see. It's the critical films, the critical forms of pop culture that were never permitted to come into existence. Exactly. Um, that for me was really interesting. 
I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, Oliver Stone, right, who appears in mm-hmm. that movie, like, I didn't get any support or assistance from the DOD's public affairs office when making my war movies. You know, of course not, right? No, yeah. Um, but was offered the Top Gun script. Yeah. Another is, thing I learned from that documentary. <laughs> that was so strange. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. So, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, if we think about, again, like, you know, media entertainment corporations, you know, is like, you know, you know like they're uh, privately owned, they're holding their shareholders, they're going to profit maximization by producing, circulating, distributing, you know, commodities that are kind of like special commodities um, that, that sort of shape and intersect with culture and ways of life and society. But then you have this this military, which is, again, you know, part of the formal state sphere, you know, that's that's not structured as a corporation or maybe it's modeled on a corporation due to a bunch of neoliberal reforms over the past four to five decades but it's something separate and, and different and and what i'm trying to emphasize you know both in in my book hearts and minds of u.s empire's culture industry and i think what that theaters of war documentary really demonstrates is this integration or this articulation or this symbiotic or synergistic relationship or partnership between two types of organizations that don't ostensibly or apparently share the same function or share the same goal or share the same interest. But here you have this hundred year history of both the entertainment media industries or Hollywood and sort of the U.S. military, the Department of Defense, you know, teaming up, partnering up, working together to produce these militainment products to, you know, put sort of, you know, U.S. military personnel, policy, technology, and war fighting in the most positive possible light before both the American public and the world public. And so, you know, this this is such an interesting phenomenon because just even if we're going to do sort of like comparative like propaganda state analysis, you know, the, this is kind of a form of, 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 of state propaganda, but it's sort of disguised or camouflaged or, you know, comes to us as just commercial entertainment, you know, that we we buy, that we purchase, that we rent, that we, you know, go to the theater to as kind of consumers of entertainment, not Mm -hmm. people that are at the outset, you know, primed to be skeptical or critical of this work, um, Mm -hmm. that that actually is, is, is a form of propaganda. I mean, if you're sort of, you know, um, perhaps in, in, in China, you, you know very much that the state is controlling quite a lot of the information that you're consuming. Um, and so perhaps you're a little bit more critical. But if you're in the United States, you know, you just go on to sort of blow off some steam, enjoy a spectacle at the theater on Amazon Prime, on Netflix. And, you know, maybe your critical faculties um, are, are weakened or diminished as a result. And yet we might imagine that in a place like China or Russia, that folks are less critical because they're more indoctrinated. Like there is this other kind of mystification or mythology that says because Putin is so aggressively controlling, uh, you know, shutting down news stations, radio stations, banning specific social media platforms, all that kind of stuff, that people are uh, more easily brainwashed and less critical. Um, But, you know, that, that belies this fact that perhaps like in a culture where you go and you enthusiastically consume media that contains this propagandist element that you're not necessarily at all aware of. You just wanted to go see Captain Marvel. Um, Like that, that you're, that you're inherently more critical, like, because you've chosen it. It's this like, it's the sneak of the sneak of consumer agency masquerading as like, yeah, I don't know, a level of just kind of critical acuity or something. Oh, well said, well said, right? The sovereign consumer always wins. You know, the, the movie product that they've selected, that they've put their $20 toward, you know, reflects their pre-existing taste and preferences. And they made a rational choice when approaching it, you know, and choosing it, uh, you know, as, 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 as opposed to the, you know, 30 other films on offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, the argument there is, is that, you know, Hollywood just gives, gives us what we want. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hollywood knows us better than we know ourselves and produces movies that speak to our, our deepest held fears um, and hopes and dreams mm-hmm. and nightmares. And, um, you know, it's this perfectly sort of cybernetic feedback loop between the entertainment producer and the entertainment consumer with no political interference. Right. And that's one of the greatest sure. of the market. Yeah. But really, with these war movies, there is. I wouldn't say political interference in a coercive way per se, but there's definitely political influence and political um, intervention for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, people's, yeah, this idea of people's desires are in charge, uh, which was so a part of sort of like the Edward Bernays school of selling both warfare and cigarettes. Like, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, like how do you govern a liberal democratic society where you can't outright coerce people? You do it by appealing to their inherent desires. And I mean, so like a film like Black Panther, for example, um, 
doesn't just make a billion dollars. Uh, it appeals to a kind of like um, a desire for identification. It's seen as because it's one of the few blockbuster films that's created by black creatives, like uh, an authentic, uh, um, you know, representation in some ways it is. It, there are lots of people for whom it is an actually um, engaging, empowering kind of experience. You know, Re- Rebecca Wanzo writes about this in the content of our caricature, um, you know, that, you know, Black Panther is is not a film that we should maybe write off, but at the same time, we can critique it, especially as she does in that book, for the strange contrast between Wakanda, this completely made up country, like we couldn't pick, you know, you have to invent a country um, that would have this level of power. But in that invented country, it is primarily an other than modern tribal and agrarian culture that nonetheless has this advanced medical, military, energy, like infrastructure. And she says like that incongruity never like it never strikes us as strange when we watch Black Panther because of all of these kind of competing mythologies. It probably also doesn't strike us as strange when watching Black Panther that, you know, uh, Wakanda is assisted by the CIA. And I don't know if the CIA had a hand in this movie um, like it does in many. Um, There's a wonderful book by Tricia Jenkins um, on that topic. We're, we're at a moment now where, um, you know, the, the, the sequel is coming out and people are talking about like, it, you know, entertainment published publications are kind of wondering whether Black Panther Wakanda Forever will beat the movie that has dominated the box office this year, which is Top Gun sequel Maverick. Um, so, you know, we could we could talk more about Black Panther, but I think we both really want to talk about the the spectacle of of maverick um yes. you yes. know so you know I, I think the way to start because you mentioned um nuclear proliferation in the united states sort of nuclear arsenal i'm really interested in this element of theaters of war where they talk about the long history of the department of defense rejecting projects that suggest the u.s military doesn't have the threat of nuclear destruction under control so like maverick is a perfect example of a film that tries to inoculate that anxiety. Jack Ryan is a show that does it too. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's it's been a subject of paranoia for a long time. Right. And and yet it, it's such a subject of paranoia, paranoia that it almost can't be depicted on film. And yet now we're seeing it in Maverick, in, in the other big box office success that Tom Cruise had recently with Mission Impossible Fallout. Mm. Why do you think the threat of nuclear annihilation is becoming a more common plot line in these products? Has the context changed? I mean, I, th- I think that they're, they're, the threat of nuclear annihilation never really went away. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. arms proliferation within this category has, has, has increased, you know, more and more states are, are equipped with these weapons of mass destruction. Um, the, the U.S. arsenal has sort of, again, grown. Um, and and I, so, I mean, it's strange because, you know, in the 60s, right, sort of this, this, this type of war, these types of, of threat scenarios, this type of anxiety, you know, was rampant and ubiquitous within the society. And if you look at even the formation of the new left, it was really a response to, to the potentiality or possibility of nuclear war, right? And people were That's afraid right. and people were anxious. Um, and and when it's certainly, you know, it's not like stage just, you know, stopped producing these weapons, stop trying to sell these weapons, you know, stop using these weapons as a threat or deterrent mechanisms. It's like, so I'm not sure. Is it, is it because we're now back in, in, in a sort of age of potential sort of superpower rivalry, you know, where again, China is not, or, you know, Russia is not sort of the superpower that the United States is, but nonetheless, these, these are quite powerful countries that may be able to exert influence within their own sphere or region of influence um, and to the expense of the U.S.'s expansionist sort of visions and sense of world order. So, so maybe there, there is real fear that these movies are trying to tap into. Um, but in the case of Top Gun Maverick, I mean, this is basically just a script pulled from like 2006, right? Mm-hmm. Because the whole, the whole plot line about uh, enemy state having a you know, hidden uranium enrichment plant um, that sort of might be operationalized to sort of produce you know, nukes. Um, basically, that speaks to U.S. geostrategic discourse about Iran around 2006 or so, right? So, like the U.S., you know, was talking about Iran, you know, emphasizing Iran's threat of weaponizing its uranium enrichment facility. I think I recall George W. Bush insisting that 
There's going to be consequences for Iran's defiance of demands that it stop enriching uranium. Uh, there's lots of fears in 2006, 2007, 2008 about Iran, um, you know, sort of having a nuclear war or something like this with the U.S. Um, I remember that um, there was even talk. I remember Seymour Hirsch did some sort of investigative report at the time uh, about the Bush administration having plans for the use of nuclear weapons against an underground Iranian nuclear facility. So in Top Gun Maverick, right, this is an underground uranium enrichment facility, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and there's all this talk about sort of striking that or destroying that. And then do you even remember like, you know, when John McCain was was um, competing for uh, the presidency? Um, do you remember that YouTube video of John McCain leading his Republican supporters in a sing-along of Bomb Iran? Like it was bomb, 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 bomb Iran to like the militarized twist on the Beach Boys, uh, Barbara Ann. So that was in like that was 2006, 2008, right? So yeah. all of these anxieties about Iran, sanctions toward Iran, have related to its uranium enrichment uh, capacity, right? And the fear that yeah, Iran yeah, yeah. will become a nuclear power, right? So it seems like this Top Gun Maverick movie is just kind of like extrapolating from this previous moment in 21st century U.S. foreign policy history, but never naming the enemy state um, Iran, right? It's, it never actually totally. names it. It's just this kind of like enemy state, which is another interesting point, because it means that the enemy could be any state that you can read into it as an audience member, you know, and the idea is that mm -hmm. threats to the United States and its allies are everywhere and nowhere all at once. But we have to be vigilant, we have to be prepared, we have to train for these yeah. uh, scenarios. The film is weird in the sense that you have two major antagonists, right? Like you have the first antagonist is the the kind of unknown one that you're you're certain can can um, destroy uh, uh, kind of an, an, an untold amount of, of infrastructure and lives through this nuclear threat. Um, but the other one is um, uh, uh, the looming reality of even more advanced weaponry of automation threatening Maverick's obsolescence. Right. Yes. Um, so you've got like drones or unmanned aerial vehicles uh, making Maverick uh, uh, irrelevant. And that is somehow almost, I mean, like that, that is a kind of premise for getting Maverick where we need him to be. Um, but why, I guess it, to me, the question is like, is it merely a premise or is there something deeper happening there in terms of making the drone, the antagonist of this kind of nostalgic formation of fighter pilot masculinity? Like is the movie trying to teach us something about will and agency in modern warfare? Don't think just do the need for, you know, good whatever good soldiers making these decisions rather than robots and and like how is it doing that teaching around the place of drones in the in the contemporary military industrial complex oh i mean cr crucially i mean i think there is that um that 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 conflict right and it's just mm -hmm. when, when the, the the officer played by ed harris right says the future's coming and you're not in it right mm -hmm. i mean but the, the fact is right is that these um you know unpersoned aircraft systems, you know, or drones. I mean, the U.S. is home to the, the largest number of drones manufacturers. It's the greatest seller of drones to the world, possesses the most drones in the world, I think like hundreds. Um, and it's carried out like hundreds of drone strikes, right? And, mm -hmm. and this is basically just a president being like, yep, we, I, I approved the drone strike in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, you know, killing thousands and like hundreds of civilians. And so right. it's interesting how the drone appears, even though the drone has been absolutely integral and, to, and instrumental uh, to sort of U.S. war fighting, the global war on terror, um, how in this movie it does appear as the antithesis, you know, or, or, or mm -hmm. a bad substitute for flesh and blood sort of macho military manly maverick mm -hmm. um and maybe that's part of just the plot structure it's creating this kind of uh tension like you know we all know the revolution of military affairs we know that the dod is seeking to automate more and more facets of human-centric warfare um, both to sort of ensure that uh u.s personnel isn't you know harmed or you know injured or killed um, but also mm -hmm. to stay at the the forefront of the technological cutting edge when it comes to preparedness to to um, defeat its enemies. And so I think that, you know, we for the last 10 years or so, we've been reading a lot about how technology is supposedly changing war. And we read a lot about how, you know, the military is investing in Iron Man suits and robotics and AI systems and everything else. Yeah. And much of the science fiction, right, related to the future yeah, of war yeah. does sort of, you know, present us with future war as being fully and totally automated war. 
Um, but then that raises maybe bigger existential questions or you know, humanistic questions about, well, what is the what is war without the human who you know sacrifices themselves, who kills and kill, you know, and, and is killed, um, which has been such a kind of common trope, right, in the history mm-hmm. of warfare and in its popular cultural representation. And so maybe the film is just starting; it's addressing us with that change. Yeah, it's interesting to look at it that way. Um, and I wondered, like, you know, what if what if the film wasn't so like spontaneously disparaging of sort of drone pilots who are, you know, people who exist, who make choices, who feel apparently, I mean, Kara Daggett has written about, um, you know, drone pilots as it were. And, and she's, I talked to her about this. She's known people in her life who um, worked in this, in this field, we'll call it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not clean. I mean, your conscience is not clean. It does no. not feel like a video game, which is somehow, you know, sometimes how it's depicted. And how, and how folks are recruited, you know, in, yeah. into sort of drone warfare, right? That it is just going to be a video game. It's going to be a clean war. It's going mm. to be a war without sort of moral conscience or sort of casualty. It's mm-hmm. going to be just precision strikes, right? It's going right. to be clean, uh, which is one of the tropes of militainment. Um, and also a trope that, you know, really does appear in this movie. Because, again, aside from, I think, what, what do we see? The, the, the sort of enemy helicopter get get destroyed, uh, and we see a few sort of fighter jets being shot down. But overall, this seems to be a pretty clean war. No Americans die. And no Americans suffer post-traumatic stress disorder, which, again, afflicts many, many drone pilots, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is the whole thing. Um, is, you know, I think I'm, I'm particularly interest on, interested, honestly, in sort of like the aesthetics of it. Because, you know, from the original to now, so much of it is about um, you know, a fantasy, creating a fantasy, really. Mm-hmm. And and a big part of that fantasy is just not knowing where we are. Like, I think it's strange how in the opening sequence, you know, Maverick is going so fast. He's the fastest man alive in uh-huh. this experimental fighter jet that he crash lands in a place that not only can he not recognize, but that we as an audience can't fully identify. It's some mythic heartland town, never named. Um, yes. The film's not interested in all at all, I don't think, in identifying specific places of home or even naming hostile territory. It's like somehow completely liminal at all times. NATO is mentioned briefly, but that's all sort of all we get for our political orientation mm. in, a, in a sense. And so I guess like, what do you think is going on specifically, not just with like the faceless uh, nature of the, the enemy threat, but also with this like deterritorialized placeless setting? And, and, you know, aesthetically, do you think that's like part of the key to Top Gun's success? I, I think that there's a lot going on there. And we could we could start, start reading that just from the point of view of changing Hollywood production dynamics in an age in which Hollywood's re- revenue, its annual box office revenue, is more dependent upon the worldwide or foreign box office than it is the North American one. Um, and so part of this deterritorialization is an attempt by Hollywood studios to avoid what some call the cultural discount. And so this is kind of like a media business term. It means that if you're too specific, too particular, too concentrated on a place, a time, a people, an ethnicity, a culture, you're going to lose much mm. of the world audience or limit your potential to appeal to people or address people in multiple countries all at once. And so Hollywood is consciously sort of denationalized. Um, and this is one of the paradoxes of right, the military's role vis-a-vis Hollywood. But Hollywood studios are basically saying, you know, we can't afford just, you know, to keep producing and rolling out explicitly American nationalist narratives um, that are, um, you know, granular and detailed um, and, and, and works of, of very sort of regional, territorial, cultural st- storytelling. So that might be going on there, I think, in, in, in some respects um, mm-hmm. in, in the Top Gun Maverick situation. I, I think the, the other piece is that Hollywood is interested in producing, you know, franchises. And, you know, franchises are kind of, you know, think about sort of Marvel um, Marvel movies. You know, it's like there's this sort of fictitious sort of but vastly expansive imagined world with kind of, you know, stories and narratives and characters. Um, and from that, you can keep spinning out sort of more stories and more characters that are part of that imagined world. And when watching Top Gun Maverick last night, it really did feel like this movie's transporting you to some sort of other space or time, even though we kind of know uh, it's happening or in the United States. Most of this is being shot like, you know, in the air 
you know, where you're not actually bound by territory. Mm -hmm. uh, most of this is sort of, you know, taking place sort of, you know, in, in oceans and things. Um, but I think that there's this sort of franchising that's going on whereby, you know, Top Gun um, Maverick is, is, a, is a world that can be endlessly commodified and turned into more and more ancillary products. Um, I mean, I haven't sort of done a, a full analysis of all of the ancillary you know, products or the merch, right, that's spun out of this movie. Um, be interesting, yeah. Yeah. But it's also, but, but in the geopolitical read, you know, maybe it's about just a nostalgia mode. You know, maybe this yeah, is yeah. about like a fantasy of America, what some presume to be a high point for the 80s, which it certainly wasn't a high point for, for most working class people in the United States. But um, this, this, this moment where, you know, you know, you could wake up in America and good morning, America, and the U.S. was taking down the Soviet Union and the evil empire um, and there was, you know, uh, Top Gun, you know, the, the, the first um, really helping the U.S. get over the Vietnam War syndrome, um, mm -hmm. really restoring the sense that the U.S. is the good guy uh, in global affairs and can do great things and be the best of the best. Yeah, that's what the logo. I see people with the Top Gun shirt. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like that seems to be the flag they're putting up. It's not I love the United States. It's I love what this movie says about the United States mythology, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I think, like, obviously, you know, Cruise is such a key part of that. Like, if there's something that's evergreen about the Top Gun franchise, it's like masculinity, right? Oh, like, yeah. Maverick is all about masculinity. Um, just like in the first film, we get this hard-bodied display of men, like, playing a sport, uh, though this time around, it's football rather than volleyball. Definitely a smart move, given the role of football in the American imaginary. Yes. Why would they be playing volleyball, you know? Uh, but just like in the 1986 film, we start in the first scene with the same score and this tone of almost like melancholy that it produces. Yeah. But then we jump right into Danger Zone, which is still <laughs> like, I couldn't believe in a way that they chose that such an 80s song. Um but so, you know, it, it just it's about that nostalgia, this nostalgic formation of, of masculinity um, it, that is so a part of Top Gun's world building. Right. Definitely. And I, and I wonder if there's anything that's changed. Like, you know, it's interesting to do sort of a bit of a compare and contrast of the way that that sort of macho militarism or, you know, masculinity gets staged and performed in the in the first you know film. And then in, in sort of how it's similar and different, you know, in, in Top Gun mm -hmm. Maverick. Like, you know, if you remember even that bar scene, right, when. Uh, Great Balls of Fire is being played on the piano by Goose, you know, prior to his, you know, death. Um, you know, the bar is pretty much white, isn't it? All of the clientele, yeah, yeah. it's a bunch of white folks. And and Top Gun and the elite fighter pilots are also basically all white guys. Now, in, in Top Gun Maverick, you know, you still have the centering of the white male hero and sort of Maverick and then sort of some of the junior uh, fighter pilots. But it's a much more diverse um you know, Top Gun uh, this time. Mm -hmm. So what's going on there? Well, I think that's, yeah, that's an interesting point. And yet, you know, like it's, it's to me, it's mostly window dressing. Like to me, it is an attempt to, um, you know, sort of negotiate a, a 20, you know, a 21st century world in which it's more bankable to have diversity. Like I, to me, that is evidenced by the fact that the only real incompetence shown in the film is assigned to a woman of color in Phoenix played by uh -huh. Monica Bar Barbero who crashes their jet in training. Right. right. Um, and so like there, I think there's this, yes, like this sense that with the sequel, the culture has changed. And so we're, we're doing a different kind of ideological work by letting more people in but so, you know, like the, the biggest trick in some ways that the movie pulls on the viewer is the fact that you think, I thought, that maybe Maverick would die, right? That they might actually kill Cruz's character off. <laughs> but he, unlike other characters, is protected by plot armor, as it's sometimes called, right? Like, um, and I guess like this is something that I'm, I'm curious about. We're, we're reaching sort of peak sequel at this contemporary moment where, you know, at the at con, you know, conclusion of the film, there's all of these gestures to um, the past, but also like this, this preposterous threat and so on. And to me, like that, that question of like, is it possible to have a version of this movie in which Maverick dies is interesting? Does mm. he, is he always going to have that plot armor? Um, and like, what about this idea of plot armor where the, the hero is invulnerable by default 
it seems like a device that audiences should get tired of because it's so predictable. And yet it seems as though it's like rooted in something deeper in this idea about whose lives are valuable, whose lives are disposable, who's competent, who's incompetent, like how we position these people. So it's like, yes, there's diversity, but it's like there isn't equity per se. No, certainly not. I mean, and of course, all of the sort of, you know, high ranking commanding officers and key decision makers are still all white guys, right? Within this yeah, top yeah. gun, within this uh, Navy. Um, you know, I think that maybe there, the optics there are also about, you know, recognition by, you know, recruiters um, that the, the real demographic shifts in the United States. You also have sort of changes um, with, with explicit targeting um, of, of women, for example, by Captain Marvel, which is basically a big recruitment ad um, targeting women. Um, very successful, right? Yeah. In that sense of recruitment. Very, very successful. But, um, you know, but, but I think, I think that, I mean, I, I had, I imagined that the film was going to um, kill off Maverick when Maverick went about trying to, you know, rescue or save, um, save uh, uh, Rooster, right? Goose's son. But mm-hmm. I don't think Tom Cruise would sign on to a, <laughs> no. uh, a script in which he died. No, <laughs> yeah. For sure. It wouldn't make any sense, right? Best of the best. This is in yeah. every movie, right? Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to like talk about Cruz, but it is tempting because he's like, he seems like he's maybe the last larger than life movie star. Like yeah, he, he's like has plot armor in real life or something. And yet I can recall a time when his erratic behavior, his involvement in Scientology, this kind of thing, like made him register as box office poison. Definitely, He had, a, he had to start a separate production company because studios wouldn't touch him. Um, and yet clearly oh, yeah. part of the game plan was really just to double down and sort of, you know, restore this nostalgic version of masculinity in which, you know, it's, it's, it's apparently a box office fact that if he runs in a film, there's like a certain boost that it gives the film yeah. monetarily. Um, but like, so, you know, I, I think it makes some sense to talk a little bit at least about this model of masculinity, which I see is like just genuinely pernicious. Um because, you know, it's it's an idealized form of masculinity that is like a fabrication, but like a dangerous fabrication. Like there's a scene early on in Maverick in the film Maverick where Maverick, this, you know, this guy who you 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 can't divorce from Tom Cruise as this like iconic whatever uh movie star. Um he has become a kind of unconventional instructor mm-hmm. and it, he makes a big show out of throwing a, a manual on the fighter jet they'll be using like in the trash. Right. And he says he wants to find their limits and find out what they think they know and all this stuff. Yeah. Cause the um, enemy's already read the instruction manual a thousand yeah. times and already knows what it says. Exactly. It's about your guts. Um, yeah. And so like, to me, it's like, it's another in a series of ludicrous moves that the franchise makes to basically ignore reality in favor of Hollywood mythmaking. It was really important to the vision of the first movie where, you know, Tony Scott, Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer were like looking for a way to build this fantasy world Mm -hmm. in the theaters of war documentary. They talk about the extent to which the creators of the movie knew that so many aspects of it was just a total fabrication, the traits, the technologies, all the trophies involved in the actual program of Top Gun, all a fabrication. And yet, and yet, here, here's sort of the, the interesting point, you know, at the level of production and DOD assistance, right, or support for these mm. movies. According to the DOD's own policy, its own entertainment liaison office says, we will support films that give a realistic or authentic look, you know, <laughs> at the operations of the military. It's, mm-hmm. it's all premised on the idea that they're correcting Hollywood fiction. And that by right. working with the DOD, there's going to be more authentic, more realistic, more accurate portrayals and depictions mm-hmm. of the DOD and its various uh, forces. Remember in the scene when, like, basically Maverick <laughs> breaks the sort of chain of command, steals a jet. Yeah. Spot, like, it's like this, this Goes he rogue. would be fired immediately. Because, like, right? He'd be in jail. But because he pulls it off through sheer force of will, um, it just, yeah. Exactly. It, it works. And this is why, you know, in, in the in theaters of war, they, they show this moment where the screenwriter, Jack Epps, uh, says, never let the truth get in the way of a good movie. And that's supposed to that's like the touchstone, really. Right. Yes. And we we can say that's all obvious. Right. That filmmakers create fantasies. But like Maverick is really the whole film is premised on this idea that the best way to wage warfare is by not thinking. And just trusting your instincts. Yes, exactly. What's the line? Don't think, just do. Um, 
And that's like, to me, it was like laughably akin to a movie moment like Obi-Wan telling Luke, use the force, let go, right? Yeah. And yet the difference is there's no mystical force here. The force in Maverick is force. That scene where Maverick is has stolen the jet, the whole scene is just him grunting and like, you know, like just this, these aggressive noises. And you're supposed to be like in that cockpit with him, right? Experiencing this level of like willful muscular control of this thing. So the idea to me is like the problem with Top Gun Maverick is fantasy and reality are no longer distinguishable. And like that is dangerous. Don't think, just do. Maybe think. You know, <laughs> what is so attractive about this model? Right. I mean, and do actual sort of Air Force and Navy instructors believe that? I don't think so. But I yet you have imagine. this movie that's designed to be a recruitment tool, basically giving a sort of misrepresentation or fantastical representation of what actually happens when you're in the ranks. But maybe that's also the point, but that at the same time negates the very policy the DOD relies upon to rationalize its support and assistance of blockbuster movies like Maverick. Mm-hmm. It's just an interesting contradiction there. It really is. Yeah. And like, if you went to see Maverick in theaters, and I don't know if this is part of the, like the the home release or whatever, the streaming release, you know, if you went to see it in theaters, you were treated to Tom Cruise addressing the audience directly in a recorded message yes. that aimed to sort of create a sense of community in seeing the film at the theater. Um, and it reminded me that as you point out in hearts and minds, Quote, Paramount Pictures proposed placing a 90-second Navy recruitment ad at the beginning of the original Top Gun video cassette in exchange for $1 million in credit toward their debt to the Navy for its assistance. So they offered to basically put an explicit ad in yes. front of the film. Notably, the Department of Defense, re- quote, rejected the offer saying that the film itself, <laughs> this is quoting the DOD, was already a wonderful recruiting tool for the Navy and more tellingly, they said that to add a recruitment commercial onto the head of what is already a two-hour recruiting commercial is redundant. You know, following Top Gun's release, recruitment reportedly increased 500%. So, you know, there's a measurable impact um, in terms of what these films produce. And so, you know, I think your work is is um, really great in terms of like doing a political economy analysis that gives a little bit of a more holistic picture of what's actually happening at the production side of, of creating these fantasies, but like, you're also invested in how and why they work. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about how they make war look and feel so good, but the way that they work is by offering a kind of emotional catharsis and that's aesthetic, right? You know, I guess that's less a question. (laughs) No, no, I think so. I mean, and I think that sort of some of the best work, right. In common media studies will, will sort of, you know, do the sort of political economy and do the production analysis, but then also do the sort of, you know, interpretation or close reading, you know, of the aesthetics of the narrative of the affective moments in the movie that, that genuinely, you know, resonate with people and move them to sort of perceive and think and act in ways that they, uh, you know, might not had they not seen that seen the movie. But I mean, just mm-hmm. to sort of back to the production, you know, level piece, we watched the credit roll um, mm-hmm. last night as well. And the credits give special thanks. And here's the here's the roll mm-hmm. to the United States Department of Defense, the United States Coast Guard, the Lockheed Martin Corporation, Navy <laughs> Public Affairs officers, all nine of them. Um, and probably about, uh, let's see, a list of I think I've about 40 other people and also military bases and also aircraft carriers and <laughs> on and on and mm-hmm. on. So uh, uh, yeah. it's, it's just, you know, this, this, it's not sort of really secret. It's just sort of, this is something that again, um, we learn about through popular press coverage and sort of critical analysis and right. elsewhere. Um, but you see sort of just the extent of the DOD's uh, support and assistance for a film like this rolling out in, 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 during the credits of this movie. And you really just demonstrates just substantive state capacity, you know, to influence and to shape, um, uh, you know, the way it, it, it looks and appears, right? And, and sort of some of these highest grossing entertainment products the world has ever seen. Yeah, and for sure. And like, I wonder this time around, there was certainly, I have to think, way more discourse around this film as like a propaganda tool. Like, but the problem in large part seems to be, to me to be, it's like, you know, it does come out through primarily sources like maybe Jacobin or or The Guardian, like left-leaning, very Mm -hmm. left-leaning in the case of Jacobin sources. You know, there were articles uh, um, in CBC and NBC about... um, 
its historical use of or as a recruitment tool of this franchise, but it was almost like a curiosity again, like just sort of like, isn't it interesting yes. that this that the original film was actually sort of a tipping point in terms of a, a high like a higher level of DoD involvement. You know, it's acknowledged as a key movie, but there isn't. It's almost like noting that ET was one of the first films that used product placement. It's just like, okay, that's cool. You know, what about the actual like inherent inherent problems with that as a model of manipulation? Like that that is less a, a you know part of the conversation. It's only really it seems a conversation among you know people that read these 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 sources. So like there are there is a real problem here with kind of filter bubbles. I think preventing um, a real engagement. And yet, you know, this is one of the things, again, that Theaters of War talks about is like, how different would it be if rather than this information being included in the credits roll, you had a big logo, <laughs> DOD logo at the at the front of the film saying like this was made with the you know cooperation. Like, what if you were legally required to do that? Right. Wouldn't that be you know, fundamentally different. I think that is kind of a revolutionary idea. I don't know how reasonable it is to actually get that pushed through, but it's an interesting, it's, you know, you know, Scott, it's an interesting one. And it's one that I think I would, would support whether mm-hmm. or not it's revolutionary. I, I'm not sure. I mean, it, for me, what it does is it brings this and Warren back to the sphere of consumer sovereignty. The idea that there's been informed sure. consent. We're all informed consumers. You know, we're all sort of rational subjects. We're going to go to the movie and we're going to know that this has been supported or assisted by the DOD. Good. Fine. You know, transparency is a good thing. I support that. But does that in any way uh, change, you know, the very undemocratic ways by which foreign policy and national security decision making um, occur? Does this in any way give the public or give the citizenry more or less capacity to shape the wars the state sort of launches, you know, in its name? I mean, the problem with this is that War is the most consequential decision a state can sort of make, you know, in the name of its nation or its people or whatnot. Um, and there's really no space for democratization of, of, of this type of decision, right? Um, and the movie itself, top, the Top Gun movie itself stages almost this sort of quasi-authoritarian mode of making, you know, foreign policy decisions when it comes to war and peace. Um, you know, it's, it's not, there's not even congressional approval that happens in this movie. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. I mean, even, even like in, in normal functioning U.S. democracy, there's supposed to be congressional approval for acts of war against other countries. We don't see mm-hmm. any of it. It's just like, mm-hmm. there's a threat. <laughs> the, the Navy and Air Force have to act. And then the whole movie is just like a big training simulation preparing us to see the act. I mean, it is the, the questions of legality, the questions of you know due process, the questions of, of legitimacy, they're thrown right out the window. But it, it feels to me like that's very much been the case in the post 9-11 global war and terror, uh, terror context mm-hmm. where, you know, basically war is, is without end. War is without, you know, temporal boundaries. War is without geographical limit. Um, and the U.S. in its state of permanent exception can basically just attack or wage war wherever its planners deem right or good uh, for the sake of the U.S.'s overarching security interest and those of its allies elsewhere. Um, and so this movie serves to sort of that, 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 that sort of acceleration. It's like there's a threat, there, there's this military action, and then there's a great celebration. <laughs> you know, the movie's yeah, over. Yeah. Is, this, is this then addressing or, you know, speaking to real anxieties that uh, American viewers might have, you know, about the waning of their military capacity to bring about these effects and bring about these impacts so swiftly and so efficiently. Um, you know, real war is very messy. There, you know, you could argue that the U.S. was strategically defeated or at least it did not achieve its outcomes in Afghanistan or Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like these were, were total disasters. Um, and uh, maybe movies like this give us this kind of hyper-real image of war that makes us feel a little bit better Maybe it gives that audience sort of a sense of safety or security. Look at, yeah, look yeah. at how swiftly our, our, our Air Force and our Navy can execute this attack. Yeah, and when we acquiesce to war as spectacle, it's like the idea here is we're acquiescing as well to this like acceleration of decision. You know, when we celebrate or, or you know, uh, experience some level of like awe at the aircraft carrier that, you know, dwarfs everything on the horizon, we're also acquiescing to just dominance as a source of security it's not it's not merely about the the uh the types of representations we receive it really is about the the material reality of how decisions are made and so much of that is obscured uh which is why you know i got a lot out of reading hearts and minds because you flesh out exactly how little democratic 
control there is over this incredibly consequential decision of going to war. It's one of those constant sort of dilemmas, Scott, you know, is sort mm -hmm. of on the left is, is really the, the capacity of the citizenry or the public or the, you know, popular, right. whatever. It's the core democratic question, right, that we constantly mm -hmm. return to, you know, is the capacity of people to self-govern, right, to autonomously sort of make decisions that are right and lead to outcomes that will benefit them in the world. And it's like, I was really trying to raise the stakes at the end of this book by posing it. Like, what would it mean, like, democratize national security like sure yeah it's almost unimaginable it's unthinkable how do we make room for the impossible like how do we make room for a climate revolution for example that would yeah. say just no more no more of this bullshit like we just you know it's it's and, yeah. yeah and i mean you're right they're just absolutely trapped epistemologically ontologically ideologically within just sort of you know brutal realism and foreign policy philosophy mm -hmm. right like there's yeah. no it's just like the world is a world of nation states. Each nation state has its security interests. There's other nation states that have security interests that conflict with the state interests that we have. Inevitably, conflict will be the outcome. We need to prepare that to win. Like that's just basically how yeah. so many people within these apparatuses uh, think, right. right? It's just game, like that's just game that's theory just, as reality. That's right. It's like one, theory of, one yeah. theory of the world is taken as, as total fact, right? As this is the mm -hmm. way the world works. Um, and the idea is that if we even try to entertain sort of perhaps a different theory of the world, then we risk falling behind or we risk getting outplayed or outmatched by our rivals or competitors, right? right. Yeah. It's just, I, I don't know what, everybody that goes into these particular decision-making roles are, are being trained, right, with this theory of IR.